From KFAI Community Radio in Minneapolis, this is Season 5 of the Miniculture Podcast. During my lifetime, I had the FBI wanted to know if I was a communist. These are women who are essentially all hopped up on Jesus and the social gospel. Crawl well on the rocks with a water bag. <laughs> this season, it's all about Minnesota history. I'm your host, Ahanti Young. We're going to get our feet wet, quite literally, in just a sec. But first, a word from one of our supporters. Support for the Miniculture Podcast on KFAI comes from Hennepin History Museum in Minneapolis. At the Hennepin History Museum, you can learn about your community through the stories of people, places, and things from our past. The museum's mission is to bring the diverse histories of Hennepin County to life and to help people understand their world through exhibits, collections, public programs, a magazine, and a research library. Learn more about member-supported Hennepin History Museum at hennepinhistory.org. Minnesota's Boundary Waters is the most visited wilderness area in the country. In this documentary, producer Joe Fredericks learns what the term wilderness means to different people across this amazing landscape. When you hear Tom McCann talk about Minnesota's Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, he's quick to point out an easily overlooked sense of balance encompassing the area. You know, there is an order to things in these wild areas. Um, You can see how things progress from young to old, and you can see how, you know, the seasons change and waters flow. But then there's also the chaos um, in itself for its own purposes. Everything that we look at as disharmony or disorder, that that disharmony to us is, is really part of the harmonic system that's there. So trees blow down, trees burn up, areas uh, are eroded. Um, Things happen out there in their own way, under their own plan, for, for its own reason. There are certain wild places on this planet that still tug at the imaginations and adventurous spirits of those who visit them. Minnesota's Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness is one such place. It is a setting of natural balance, often romanticized by visions of white pines, singing loons, and breathtaking sunsets. In turn, this is a harsh landscape, with winter temperatures that often dip to 30 below zero or colder. With such brutal cold, it's not uncommon for the 1,000-plus lakes inside the wilderness area to be covered in ice for more than half the year. When the waters do open, there are summer winds and fires and all manner of insects and wild creatures that can make life challenging for human visitors. And yet, come for the challenge they do. In fact, this is the most visited wilderness area in the entire nation. On average, approximately 150,000 people visit the BWCAW each year. This is a wilderness that McCann, 
a retired Forest Service employee who lives in Grand Marais on Minnesota's North Shore, says speaks directly to the core of what wild places offer the human spirit. As you move, as you travel, uh, there's unlimited opportunities to feel this level of sensitivity rising, to feel your own perceptions deepening, and that recognizing that the earth itself, the landscape around you is basically good, is a transforming experience. Though it is now frequented year-round by visitors from all over the world, this was a land that was long inhabited by Minnesota's first residents and indigenous communities. This history dates back some 10,000 years to when Paleo-Indians hunted and gathered here. Over the course of thousands of years, other native populations moved in and out of the region, including the Ojibwe people. Despite the comings and goings of various human inhabitants, the one constant in the history of the area is that the Boundary Waters region has always remained sparsely populated. For his part, McCann is no stranger to the land and water located in the BWCAW. Like many who visit here, a canoe is his preferred method of transportation. Some visitors opt for hiking trails and carrying backpacks, while others yet prefer skis and snowshoes and winter travel. Regardless of the season, when he does travel through the wilderness, McCann often chooses to travel great distances across the seemingly endless chain of lakes, rivers, and portage trails. One of the virtues of the Boundary Waters Canary Wilderness is that it is a large landscape and it's large enough to have many ecosystems that one can experience and observe as they travel through on a canoe route or a hiking trail. And observing those ecosystems in different stages of their cycles is very informative, I think, because it shows how dynamic uh, the landscape, the forests, the water systems, and the weather systems are and and how that they work together to rapidly change the face of reality, if you will. To fully understand McCann's fascination with the Boundary Waters and the fact he and hundreds of thousands of others are allowed to paddle a canoe through this landscape in relative solitude, one has to sort through the pages of history to see the full picture. The BWCAW encompasses more than a million acres of pristine and remote wilderness in the far reaches of northeastern Minnesota. It is managed by the United States Forest Service, and among the wilderness area's unique attributes, at least when it comes to management, is the fact motors of any kind are not allowed. This is a largely quiet space, inhabited by moose, wolves, bears, and other species that tend to captivate the human spirit. These wild creatures roam through a collection of dense forests, deep lakes, and thousands of flowing waterways. I'm out here now in the Boundary Waters. We're at a campsite on Pine Lake, on the eastern side of the wilderness. Beautiful campsite. Checking things out as we settle in. Here's a just a beautiful red pine. Probably 150 years old at least. Just based on the size of this massive pine as I'm staring up toward a clear blue sky. Tent set up right over there. Perfect flat spot. Go check things out down by the lake. 
winds are picking up just a little bit this afternoon. All kinds of spruce and cedar lining the shoreline here. The water's so clear, as I'm looking out to pine, I can see rocks way deep down, 15, 20 feet deep. Really drops off deep right by shore here. A little bay over here where we're thinking that it'd be a good spot to maybe see some moose later. And it's just a nice little spot down here that we've got tucked out. Views to the west. Looks like the poplar trees are just starting to get their leaves and bloom. Beautiful day here in the Boundary Waters. Where conservation is concerned, the area's pathway toward becoming a federally protected wilderness started in the 1920s and reached a conclusion of sorts in 1978 with the passage of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Act. McCann is equally as fascinated by canoeing as he is in learning about those who came before him and who worked tirelessly to protect this pristine wilderness. One name of specific interest to McCann is Arthur Carhart. Along with famed conservationist and author Aldo Leopold, Carhart was an early architect of what are now classified as designated wilderness areas in the United States. There are now more than 800 such areas spread across the country, including the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. And while Leopold is famous for his writings, including a Sand County Almanac, Carhart is not a name that leaps to the forefront of many canoeists who enter the BWCAW. Canoe country legends like Sigurd Olson, the root beer lady Dorothy Moulter, or Gunflint Trail icon Justine Kerfoot did more writing in this region and had more written about them than Carhart did and likely ever will. However, Carhart's influence and a specific journey he took in 1921 to the Boundary Waters literally shaped how the federal government and the American public defined designated wilderness in the United States. It was the Forest Service who directed Carhart to Superior National Forest in 1921 to tour the area and report his findings to the federal government. They were interested in how the area could best be managed and were counting on Carhart's experience in the backcountry to assist in their decision-making process. Carhart traveled a route from Ely toward what is now the Sawbill Trail area. Carhart was fresh off a similar expedition to Colorado near Trapper's Lake. The Forest Service sent Carhart to the mountain lake to survey a road that would likely lead to development around the lakeshore. However, after completing the survey, Carhart made the recommendation to the Forest Service to not build the road, but rather keep it protected and preserved as a wilderness area. During his visit to Superior National Forest in 1921, Carhart came away with a similar recommendation. Leave it alone, he said. This included abandoning plans to build a road connecting Ely with the Gunflint Trail. Ann Schwaller is the Wilderness Program Manager on Superior National Forest. Schwaller uses history as her guide to navigate many modern-day uses for what types of human activity can and should be allowed in the BWCAW. She is well-versed in the history of early wilderness pioneers in America, including Leopold and his friend Carhart. 
Here, Schwaller reads a section of a letter from Carhart to Leopold that was written in 1919 as they explored what the term wilderness could mean in terms of forest management. He says, these areas can never be restored to the original condition after we have invaded them. And the great value lying as it does in natural scenic beauty should be available not for the small group, but for the greatest population. Time will come when these scenic spots where nature has been allowed to remain unmarmed will be some of the most highly prized scenic features of the country. So this was written in 1919, and um, I just think that's, that's fabulous. And you can, you can totally see where Aldo Leopold has um, also made an impression on Carhartt because Leopold is, you know, famous for saying the greatest good for the greatest number of people. To honor Carhartt's important trip to the Boundary Waters region in 1921, McCann and six other canoe adventurers set out in the cold autumn months to retrace his steps. They made their trip in the fall of 2020. Their journey covered more than 94 miles and involved dozens of portages, including one nearly two miles in length that was overgrown and essentially forgotten in the pages of time. The group started their trip on Farm Lake on September 25th, and it ended about a week later at Silver Rapids, the very same location Carhartt had started and finished his 1921 expedition. If the law of the land followed a simple pattern of who arrived first, all of the Quetico Superior region belongs to the native communities who first walked the earth here. History, movement, migration, and treaties have told otherwise. Still, many of the same reasons people celebrate the BWCAW and Quetico Provincial Park in modern times were always ingrained in the lifestyle of the indigenous communities who call this area their home. Bonjour, I'm Anna Disha. I am a Grand Portage band member and lifelong resident of the community. You know, growing up, that was just what we knew of life is, um, you know, we would go fishing in all parts of the year, fall, spring, summer, and winter. Uh, my dad was just a really awesome hunter, and so we would go out. We would spend a lot of time when we were little just, you know, kind of tagging along with him and um in the winter, he trapped, and he taught us how to do that as well. So it was very much a part of our identity growing up and just a part of our lifestyle. The animals and plants and the land on which they grow were so ingrained in the Deshaw household that Anna never tasted beef until she went to school in Grand Marais. You know, I had always just grown up eating moose meat, and so I think, you know, an example like that, it just really speaks to this wasn't something that you know, we would do recreationally or just for fun, but it was a very key element in who we are as people and just how we lived our lives. Anna's father, Norman Deshaw, was the longtime tribal chair for the Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. Norman died in February 2019 after serving as tribal chair for 27 years. Throughout his life and during his decades as tribal chair, Norman was a strong advocate for treaty rights in the history of the indigenous population in the Boundary Waters region. That history was very important to her family growing up, Anna says, and while her father worked with groups like the Forest Service toward many common goals, Anna describes the band's relationship with the state and federal governments as complicated. 
though there are shared values when it comes to protecting the land and waters in the BWCAW. Yeah, they're complicated. They collide sometimes, right? Treaty rights and wilderness protection laws sometimes collide. The Boundary Waters is within this 1854 ceded territory. So at that time, when the signatories of the band signed the treaty, there was no foresight that potentially this huge chunk of land where people lived would potentially be hindered or be vulnerable to this legislation that could potentially hinder access, right? So you're thinking about this is an area where people lived. You know, we're talking about places where people have family connections to, ancestral connections to, where they learn to harvest their food, harvest their medicines, where people are buried, you know, where they have had um, the ceremonial grounds for generations. And so I think the motivation is just a bit more than wanting to go to a certain spot. It's talking about, you know, this is where, this is where we have lived. This was the agreement that we came to in 1854, and that's what should be honored to this day. According to the Minnesota Historical Society, the Second Treaty of La Pointe in 1854 ceded most Ojibwe land on the northern and western shores of Lake Superior to the U.S. government. In return, BAM members on the established reservations received annual payments and a guarantee that they could continue to hunt and fish throughout the large region, including what is now the BWCAW. However, in reviewing historical documents related to the formation of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness that were assembled by the United States Forest Service, the Minnesota House of Representatives, and even wilderness advocacy groups like the Save the Boundary Waters campaign, there's typically little or even no mention of the 1854 treaty or of any history relating to the indigenous communities. The Forest Service, for example, starts their BWCAW timeline with Carhart's paddle from 1921 and his subsequent publication called Preliminary Prospectus, an outline plan for the recreational development of the Superior National Forest. A 2004 document printed by the Minnesota House of Representatives starts its chronology of historical actions for the BWCAW in 1857, when the United States Congress granted land to support schools in the University of Minnesota, noting that a year later in 1858, Minnesota was admitted to the Union and therefore received ownership of the beds of navigable waters in the Boundary Waters region. Not once in the House's timeline that stretches 146 years is there any mention of the Anishinaabe or indigenous communities. DeShaw says there are elements of historical trauma for band members when it comes to analyzing the history of what is now the most visited wilderness area in the United States. That being the case, she also speaks with a sense of optimism about moving forward toward common goals such as clean water. So who manages the land really goes back to who controls the land, and then who controls the resource, and then that means who controls the people. There's generational trauma with these things, and you can look at the Boundary Waters as one example 
of when this happened, and there are so many examples throughout history, right? But, you know, to to the point of having a wilderness um, and this huge area of pristine and protected land, I, I would agree that's a good thing, you know? Um, it's important to have these areas where we can continue to practice our treaty rights because that argument can be made as well. Well, if, you know, the water gets polluted and, you know, these environmental protections aren't in place, then where are you going to practice your treaty rights anyway, right? Paula Marie Powell is a Cook County resident who grew up on the Canadian side of Saginaw Lake at the end of the Gunflint Trail. Portions of SAG, as the lake is commonly referred to, sit within both the BWCAW and Quetico boundaries. Powell is a descendant of the Lac La Croix First Nations community in Ontario. Her great-grandmother was Mary Ottertail from the Lac La Croix First Nation, and they planted the family's roots to the region on Saganagans Lake, another massive body of water located just north of SAG and Quetico. Powell says her family's deep history in the Boundary Waters region was always connected in a deep way to the land and water where they lived. Her family has run trap lines, fished and hunted here for more than a century. Powell says that designating a place like the Boundary Waters as an official wilderness area changed not just how people could recreate in the place where she grew up, but who could live there as well, regardless of the color of their skin. What I remember hearing about when, when the BWCA became the BWCA, I remember hearing a lot of people having been kicked out of their cabins and stuff, Indigenous people and white people, and how that, you know, that was really unfair to the people that lived there. Looking back on the history of the BWCAW, Indigenous communities were not alone when it comes to people feeling the federal government forever changed their way of life with the wilderness designation. Motor restrictions aside, many people who owned land in the area had their cabins that stood within the wilderness boundaries bought by the federal government. Those cabins were then burned to the ground, or in some cases removed, after passage of the 1964 and 1978 Wilderness Acts. However necessary the wilderness designation might prove to be in order to keep the BWCAW pristine, it stirred a sense of bitterness for some, Powell says. Yeah, I think that there's a purpose to it, but I mean, there's definitely some resentment, or was, and a lot of times, as you probably know up here, that it just, it seems like our, the rules and regulations are being made by people that that maybe don't know, you know, what's happening on the ground, and I, I think there was some of that, too, because a lot of, a lot of decisions, you know, legislative decisions are made by people you know, in meeting rooms <laughs> and not the people that are actually affected by them. I think that that's where some of that resentment came from, too. Though Carhartt is an early-day architect for wilderness conservation, the name Sigurd Olson is likely more familiar to most visitors of the BWCAW. Olson spent many years living on the edge of the Boundary Waters in his home near Ely, he was a prolific author and worked tirelessly to advocate for wilderness protection across the country, including his home turf and what would eventually become the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. 
I had the good fortune of being selected for an artist residency by the Listening Point Foundation in late April and early May in 2021. I spent four days at the home of Sigurd Olson and also visited Listening Point on Burntside Lake many times during my stay. I reflected on the words of Anna DeShaw and Paula Marie Powell, as well as personnel from the United States Forest Service and those of Tom McCann. While producing this documentary, I had asked each of them what wilderness means to them. After hearing their stories, it seems that the term wilderness can and perhaps should mean different things to different people. It should be understood that for some people, wilderness is a concept, not a place. Understanding this, and by weaving their stories together, what emerged is the intrinsic value of the Boundary Waters. By listening to all of their stories, it became clear that the reasons people cherish natural wild space is because it offers a place of connection. It is a link to a different chapter in the human experience. For some, the link represents a truer reflection of what life on this planet is potentially all about. Ultimately, it seems, no matter the reason people come to the wilderness, no matter what they seek, at the very least there is space to explore the unknowns that rest within. Mike Cruteau is the Gunflint District Ranger on Superior National Forest. On the local level, he's the boss for all things that happen on the far east side of Minnesota's Boundary Waters. As challenging conversations take place across the country about racial equality following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May 2020, Cruteau says it's important that the Forest Service and the outdoor recreation industry understand that it's important to have age, race, and gender diversity and equal access when it comes to places like the Boundary Waters. The Forest Service continues to do outreach in areas like the Twin Cities to encourage and provide pathways for young people, regardless of their age, race, or economic background, to visit the BWCAW. The value of wilderness and what it provides for not only you know ecosystem services, providing clean water, clean air, all those things, but the value that it has to us humans um, has been shared for a long time. And it should not be for just one group. It is um, America's pristine, highest value land, so to speak, that, you know, should be accessible to all to experience those benefits of being out in the, out in the wilderness, the things that that I greatly enjoy and value about being in wild places, I want to be able to provide that for anyone. The Forest Service has been collecting data through surveys and various studies since the late 1960s regarding visitation numbers in the BWCAW. The surveys, one completed as recently as 2007, were focused on certain aspects of who enters America's most visited wilderness, Cruteau says. Some of those surveys, those studies were, um, you know, looking at age and, and gender and use patterns and the type of use. Um, not so much on the, on the racial, racial diversity and, and demographics, um, unfortunately, but we know that, you know, um, you know race, racial diversity is, is low in the, in the Boundary Waters as well. And then what we're also finding is um, through time, 
the the age class of the visitors um, is increasing through time. So fewer younger people are are getting out, and that's a that's a um, that's a big eye opener, I think, for us. In that, um, you know, we we need to encourage young visitors to the wilderness to um, help them understand the the value. Um, you know, to get them out and and um, you know training, help them experience, um, teaching them wilderness ethics and um, the value of these precious lands that we have, um, not only here in, in Minnesota but across the across the nation. Topics like access and diversity among those who visit the wilderness aside, there are a number of threats to the boundary waters that could reshape these treasured woods and waters in the future. A proposed copper-nickel mine in the BWCA watershed near Ely is among the active threats. Groups like the Save the Boundary Waters campaign work tirelessly to educate the public about threats posed by the proposed Twin Metals mining project near Birch Lake, just outside the wilderness. Another threat is climate change, which could literally reshape the forest landscape and wipe out treasured fish species such as lake trout, that love the region's clear, cold waters. When Tom McCann and six others retraced the canoe route of Arthur Carhart nearly 100 years after the wilderness pioneer paddled these waters in 1921, there was little difference in the landscape, give or take a logging operation that took place between the Wilderness Act that passed in 1964. In wilderness settings, there are connections people can make to the land regardless of their age, race, or gender, by walking in the footsteps of those who have come before us. Despite the difficulties that went into protecting this landscape known as the Boundary Waters, and the many challenges yet to come, when someone paddles the same route he did in the fall of 2020, and that Carhartt did in 1921, McCann hopes the area looks and feels the same. Yeah, it's very satisfying to realize that that the landscape that he traveled is still there, the experiences that he had are still available, that the, the consciousness and awareness and perceptions that were deepening within Arthur Carhartt were available to myself and the crew that I was with. Um, moving beyond that into into a sense of deep appreciation for all the things that led up to Carhartt showing up on the Superior, to all of the um, continued activities and management within this area that we call the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, you know, with all of its uh, its own histories. But then the fact that, you know, there is this wild land that's under its own guise and that as it looks, it will be allowed to move through its own journey without all of the manipulations and filters that humans want to put on a landscape to make it more livable. Support for this project comes from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.
That's it for the Mini Culture Podcast on KFAI. The documentary, A Living History of the Boundary Waters, was produced by Joe Fredericks. This podcast was edited by Melissa Olson and Ryan Dawes. Support for Mini Culture on KFAI comes from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Support also comes from the Hennepin History Museum. For the Mini Culture Podcast, I am Ahanti Young. Be conscious, be creative, be changed. Thank you.